Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. The Atlantic has a particular smell. It drifted over the last hill, the first familiar scent in months, apart from the daily whiff of coffee. I breathed it in, salt air, and then here it was, spread out, glistening below. The final moments of sunset vanished over its brink, the sea which bounds the world. For over half a year, I had crossed the African continent on a bicycle, thousands of miles along the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, across the Maasai Steppe and along the Okavanga Delta, over the Sahara and Kalahari deserts. And here it was, at the edge of Namibia, greeting me, an old friend, the Atlantic. That evening, I swam in its cool waters. I sat on the beach and tasted the breeze. It was the same water I had known in Ireland, but here, in the southern hemisphere, a different assembly of stars gazed down and dappled its surface, Sagittarius and Eridanus, no sight of Orion or Pegasus. Here, the cool sea breeze mingled with the dune-channeled winds of the Namib desert, not the yearning draught of the Donegal hills. The Namib desert, a sea of sand that piles up and rolls down in great waves to the Atlantic. Namib, from the Nama language, where there is nothing. Atlantic, from the defeated Titan Atlas, condemned to hold up the heavens for eternity, the stars that shine down on the sea, who stands at the edge of the earth. From archaic Greece, Atlas was banished to the far west, to the North African mountains which bear his name a name that was transferred to the endless ocean which rolls out from his feet, the great ocean which surrounded the antique world beyond which no mortal ventured. It was Atlas who reached between the earth and the sky, who knew the places of the stars and gathered them into the great celestial sphere, the stars which surround the earth that ever vests on the Atlantic. The Arctic Ocean, too, has its name in the stars, from the Greek Arcticos, near the bear, the great bear, Ursa Major, which leads the way to Polaris, the North Star, the stars which guide the way over the sea. Because it is constantly moving, finding a way across the sea is always done in relation to the land or the stars. This is how Magellan circumnavigated the world, rendering it a sphere. He made the world by sailing around it. Arriving on the great ocean to the west of the Americas, Magellan declared it the Pacific, a water of peace. It was a still day when he arrived there, barely a ripple lapped on his ship, and so an entire ocean, the largest body of water on this earth with all its currents and gyres, upwellings, islands, rifts and reefs and deep trenches was summed up in a single moment of calm. What is an ocean if not seen in relation to a shore or a ship or a star? Darkness fell on the Namib coast, the skeleton coast, for the shipwrecks and the bones of whales that scatter its sands. I know this water, but the coast is new. 
My campfire burns on unfamiliar sand. The spectre of a gannet haunts the dusk. What is an ocean, if not bounded by land? Indian Ocean, Irish Sea, Persian Gulf, all tethered to terra firma. I think of the places I came from, Port Nabla, harbour of the buttermilk, where ocean swells churn and back on themselves in a froth. Maharorty, plain of the spring tide, where the sea smears on a new moon. What is an ocean, if not eternal movement? Names are motionless and unfit for water. Unless taken in a single instant, distilled to a soul quality. The campfire has warmed my body from the chill of the sea. Even the cold is gone. The tide has turned in this moment on the coast of Namibia. It is only the smell that is constant. The Atlantic is a smell before it is a sea. It was the 25th of June, 1963. My friend who lived across the road was intent on going down to see the President of the United States coming into the city from Dublin Airport. I wasn't too pushed at all, but out of idle curiosity I went with her. At the junction of Griffith Avenue and the airport road, a substantial crowd had gathered. And then a cheer rang out. In the distance, a cavalcade was moving slowly along Drumcondrell Road. He came into view, tall and tanned, with teeth that were the whitest we'd ever seen. He was standing in an open-topped limousine, smiling, his shiny, white-toothed smile, waving to the crowd. We had never seen the likes before in Ireland. This was a god, a golden, shiny American god from the New World. We were smitten. For the rest of John Fitzgerald Kennedy's visit to Ireland, we were glued to the television. On the third day of his visit, the President would address the Houses of the Arctus, the first foreign leader ever to do so. My father worked in Dáil Éireann. He was a stenographer and proud as punch of his skills with Pittman's shorthand. That day he went to work as usual, the tools of his trade clutched tightly in his hands. His civil service jotters, an array of HB pencils and his prized fountain pen. It was an ordinary working day for him. If he was nervous, nobody in our house noticed. Certainly not his children. Watching the day's events on the television that evening, my sisters and I were surprised to see our dad right bang in the middle of the television screen. Teared ranks of TDs filled the chamber. Doyle reporters sat in front of the president. My father sat alone, recording the president's words for posterity. Head down, he was writing furiously as President Kennedy spoke, giving a wide sweep of Irish history, mentioning poets and patriots such as Parnell, O'Connell, Grattan, Thomas Francis Marr and George Bernard Shaw. 
President Kennedy shook hands with many of the TDs. Did he talk to my father? Did he shake his hand? Did he ask him to read back what he had written? We, his family, don't know because we never asked. The speeches had to be dictated, typed and prepared for distribution. So my dad didn't get home until late that evening and by the next day things had moved on. We never discussed his part in the pageant unfolding across the country. We all took his screen debut for granted and carried on as usual with our own little worlds. Weeks later the photographs arrived and there he was again in the middle of them all scribbling away. The photos are still on the wall of the sitting room. In subsequent days my father brought his notebooks home to go over his translation. I tried to decipher the strange squiggles, wondering why there were two slanted lines like an equal sign beside some of the shorthand hieroglyphics. All names have those two lines, he told me. His heading said, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, 28th of June, 1963, with the two slanted lines beside the name in shorthand. When he retired from the doll, my father continued working as a stenographer in the courts. Only he could read his own shorthand. I learned Pittman's shorthand myself when I left school, but could never read any of my dad's outlines, except for those with the by now familiar slanted lines indicating a name. As he aged, he developed tremors in his hands and arms, and then dementia. Every day he would sit in his favourite chair, writing in shorthand on the margins of the newspaper and on small squares of paper what was being said on the radio. He would then read the script back to an invisible audience. Some of the outlines became familiar to me. They were there day after day. Always four, one beneath the other, each with the familiar two slanted lines beside them. The names of his four children. Over and over he would write them, until the day there were only three names. Then two, with an attempt at the third. A furrow of frustration at his failing memory made a gash on the paper. Eventually... Only the names of his two older daughters were there. Then just one. His erased memory eradicated totally. A long way away from that day, when he wrote with fluency and fluidity the lines. Some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? And the heading, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, 28th of June 1963, with two slanted lines beside it. You're just too marvelous, too marvelous for words like glorious, glamorous. In that old standby, amorous, it's all too wonderful. I'll never find the words that say. I had forgotten about the pheasant. He came every winter and hid in the thickets of dogwood where large animals couldn't get at him. Although the cats would be supple enough to venture in if they were brave enough to challenge him. But the pheasant was reasonably safe and well fed because we tended to him, scattering seeds beneath the bird feeder. It was a joy to watch him strutting on Christmas Day 
instead of ending up in someone's Christmas pot. We called him Arthur, and he was around for a few winters, although I could never find him in summertime. Then one Christmas came, and he never appeared. I knew that the men with guns and dogs in little vans don't arrive on the hills around us until January, scouring the winter lanes in search of prey. So the absence of the pheasant didn't bother me initially. I presumed he was on holidays. In Tenerife, or Corfu perhaps, for the sun. Arthur might be sitting on a deck chair near the swimming pool with a little sun hat on his beaky head, preening his feathers. I know that's just fantasy. Pheasants don't have iPhones or thumbs and fingers for holding cocktail glasses and they probably don't know where Knock Airport is. And if they did, they wouldn't have a clue what class of a board was coming at them if a Ryanair flight was landing. But war in the garden was always ugly. Even the cats occasionally arrived at the door with the broken bones and feathers of something half-dead in their jaws. And there are badgers around us, and foxes, and an occasional squirrel, all desperate for food in winter. Badgers are so desperate and hungry, betimes, that they get run over by cars as they wobble home on winter nights. The foxes near us are so plentiful and clever that they once broke through a friend's fence, took one goose, and then hours later came back for the second goose. So I finally reconciled myself to the fact that Arthur was missing in a war zone and presumably dead. Which brings me to the story of the furry rabbit, a little toy with a yellow body and big blue ears that I found last winter to replace Arthur. The furry rabbit was made by a Ukrainian woman and it was on sale at a craft auction in Donegal this time last year. There were paintings and craft objects by many Ukrainian artists now living in Donegal, but the bunny rabbit drew my attention perched on the window ledge. Of course, I know that the teeth of a fox, the wheel of a car, or the shotgun of a Leitrim farmer are not as terrifying as tanks, guns or missiles are to a little child. Missiles can target cultural institutions, galleries or museums, or the fragile limbs of a child. So making art is a kind of defiance. Art pushes against the darkness of war with magnificent eloquence. The woman facilitating the art auction last year announced the name of each artist as she held up their painting, saying who they were and where they were from. Kiev, Odessa, Kherson, Kharkiv. The names rolled out like a litany of sorrow. When she spoke the name of Mariupol, I shivered, remembering the stories of people trapped for weeks and how that city was erased to the ground. In her hand was a small painting by an artist 
who had hidden underground and fled before the city was reduced completely to rubble, before Mariupol became a graveyard for thousands of children. The next item at the auction happened to be the furry rabbit. Once again, made with craft and care, with love and devotion for some child that might play with it. A child's toy is a fragile thing, and I couldn't refuse it. A little crocheted yellow rabbit with blue ears. Yeah, I missed Arthur, and I expect he was slaughtered. But I also wanted something which would commemorate the slaughtered children who will never again play with any soft or furry toy. So I bought the rabbit and I called him Arthur. And so far he's lasted well perched on a shelf of books from where his button eyes gaze at me relentlessly with a big sad expression that feels like he has been crying. Last year it was Mariupol that the little rabbit cried for. This year it's the village of Berry and the city of Gaza. I don't know what city or village it will be next year or the year after because war seems to move like a contagion from one place to another. But the little rabbit will endure. He is a symbol of love, the triumph of art. And to me, he is a lamp that shines in the darkness. Astoria, Queens, New York. 28th Road to be exact. Top floor of a three-storey walk-up. The elevated N and R subway rattled past the window. If you hung out at just the right angle, you could see the tip of the Empire State Building. It was a two-bed apartment that we'd made into three. The kitchen was tiny and contained more cockroaches and mouse droppings than food. The bathroom housed a weird red heat lamp that looked like it had come straight from the dodgy basement of Studio 54. It was the reason we'd moved in, along with the mirrored mural of the Manhattan skyline in the sitting room. We might not have been able to afford the big city rents, but that wouldn't stop us having notions. By November 2000, Dervil and I had been there a couple of years, and Helen was newly landed, three 20-something Irish girls taking a bite out of the Big Apple. Derv worked for Enterprise Ireland, Helen sold ceramic leprechauns and my job was selling Viagra, among other things. The vibe was more carry-on camping than sex in the city. Our biggest concern was whether to go to the Spring Lounge, the Scratcher, Swifts or Chenet, and if we could get Barry from St Dimpna's and St Mark's Place to service curry chips at 4am. For us, New York was Broadway dance classes, 
lingering brunches, browsing in Barnes and Noble and sunset walks along the Brooklyn Bridge. We travelled in a pack. There were midweek picnics, watching opera in Central Park and old movies in Bryant Park. We sang in Korean karaoke bars, went skiing for the first time and ice skated under the Rockefeller Christmas tree. I'd already enjoyed a few American Thanksgivings, so that year we decided to host our own. None of us had ever cooked a turkey. Helen took responsibility for that, making many calls home to her mammy in Manor Bride for instructions. Derv did a nut roast from her Linda McCartney cookbook. I was in charge of desserts, cocktails and vegetables, for which my pièce de résistance would be creamed spinach. The recipe from swanky Midtown Manhattan Steakhouse Smith and Walensky involved me buying four crates of spinach at 3am in the fruit and veg bodega on 30th Avenue. When I hauled them home, everyone was very dubious about the volume of spinach. But who are we to argue with Smith or Walensky? Our guests called to ask what they could bring. I said tables and chairs. We fashioned a wonky, multi-level L and O shaped dining area which I covered with a couple of cut-priced tablecloths I'd bought on Steinway Street. They turned out to be shower curtains, but did the job nicely, and all 21 of us got to sit down facing each other with our Manhattan skyline as a backdrop. The Astoria Irish Posse, a motley crew of visiting schoolmates, work colleagues, college friends, and recently arrived acquaintances with nowhere else to go. Moy Cullen and Meath, Cove and Kalini, the Scanner and London, were all represented. We even had one token yank, Beth from Ohio, whom Durv had met in the pub. Fancying myself as something of a Thanksgiving veteran, I insisted that we honour tradition and go around the table telling everyone what we were thankful for. The detail of what each of us said is hazy now, but as I recall all those fresh and optimistic faces, what stays with me is one simple sentiment. We were grateful to have each other. When you're young and thousands of miles from home, your friends become your family. In a time before Zoom, Skype or cell phones, bad news was delivered on communal answering machines. Or worse, phone calls that stopped coming. When trouble landed at your door, it was your friends who picked you up and put you back together again. But thankfully that day, our worries were few. As the evening wore on, we skidded around the kitchen on gravy The service got sloppy and cocktails now consisted largely of tequila and washing up liquid. There was a full-on disco under the red light in the bathroom. Our numbers swelled to include people on their way home from family gatherings and perhaps a yellow cab driver or two. The clean-up took weeks, but the leftover cream spinach lasted longer. And the memories have prevailed for decades. Little did I know then that it would be my last New York Thanksgiving. By November 2001, everything had changed. The Manhattan skyline had lost its twin towers and with them went the innocence and hope that had glowed from us all around that wonky table. But then, like before, we picked each other up and held fast together. It's probably why so many of us are still friends. Some stayed in the States, some left. I don't think anyone remains in Astoria. It's far too hipster these days for the likes of us. But every Thanksgiving in Dublin, a smaller group of friends get together and sit around a table facing each other. Lines cut deep into our features now, but the chat inevitably returns to that Thanksgiving in 2000. When we were young, carefree, 
and so thankful for each other. I say goodbye to all my sorrows and by tomorrow As soon as I crest the hill at Crookinonion, the big blue of the ocean opens out. Its expanse seems to flood the land around it in a watery light. From behind the dunes, the Atlantic roar is magnified, making me crane my neck for the first view of Inishowan's giant rollers. Winter is the season when Donegal's wild beauty is at its most raw and elemental. I used to watch the nights fall with a heavy heart. I'd wait for the last swallow to leave, watch the blackberries wither and try to cling on to autumn's bounty and summer's fading blooms. But that was before I fell in love with the winter, for its light and its darkness, and most of all, its ability to unleash the power of nature in the wild places that draws me out of my house to witness this magic for myself. On a day when the rain falls in plump drops and the wind whips around my legs, I will look out and know that it's a day for the cormorants. But it's also a day for me. These birds feel like kin. The wilder, the better for both of us, I think. The sea's energy is rising now. The soft evenings of late dips have given way to white horses bucking and churned up waters, making the horizon itself look choppy. Summer's visitors are long gone. The coffee vans have packed up. There's a quiet amid the ferocity of the elements and I'm overcome with excitement at having a vast, open expanse of oceanfront all to myself. The sea may not be as welcoming for swimmers at this time of year, but it has a magnetism all the same. Beachcombers never know what treasure will be tossed ashore. A perfect grey cockle shell a bright red boy that snapped from its moorings, a heart-shaped piece of sea glass. There are late afternoons at this time of year when I look out the window at a candy-coloured evening sky and I'll want to spend the day's end at Pollen Beach in Ballyliffin. Here I dare not get too near the ocean's edge. This is not a place to swim, but to watch the power of the sea in all her glory. You can see the breakers from miles off, there's an energy to the waves here that weaves a spell, calling you to set your churning thoughts free, to let them match the frequency of the ocean. In the distance, the hulk of Glashidi Island is taking a pummeling, currents swirling in all directions. I pull my coat tighter, head down into the wind, as I walk to Caragabrahi Castle. I'll watch the gannets first hover, then wrap their wings tightly about themselves before dive-bombing into the swell. My inky friends, the cormorants, will majestically surf the waves before facing into the wind to dry out their wings. A day can never feel ordinary once you've witnessed these things. Donegal's big winter tides seem restless, searching. 
they remind me of the story of how the Greek goddess Demeter is plunged into anger and grief that her daughter Persephone must spend the winter in the underworld. Only her child's return will pacify her and bring calm to the land and the waters once again. When all the colours of sunset have faded into almost darkness, the ocean becomes like a giant lantern at day's end. If I'm very lucky, as I stand facing out to sea, I might make out the shape of a pod of dolphins making their way across the bay. Winter brings its own abundance here. Everyone of my age knows where they were and what they were doing on 22 November 1963, 60 years ago. I was an American junior high schoolboy sitting in study hall when a teacher I did not know leaned through the doorway and, addressing our teacher, softly stated that President Kennedy had been shot and was apparently dead. There had been rumors of a shooting and this made it official. As young teenagers, we had no tools to process this information. We thought our study hall supervisor was stern, but the impact on her was evident. She sat down at her desk, buried her face in her hands, and wept. On this occasion, we did not take the opportunity to launch paper airplanes or joke among ourselves as we usually would have. As I say, we knew it was serious. Two lessons emerged. Adults have feelings. And secondly, sometimes, and in some circumstances, the grown-ups don't have control. We knew what had happened, and we didn't know what had happened. We certainly did not know what to do. Less than two decades after World War II, the generation that did the fighting had produced a handsome, charismatic president, the firstborn in the 20th century. The world seemed confident and optimistic. The taking of the life of our commander-in-chief seemed unreal and incomprehensible. There was an announcement that the dance schedule for that night was canceled. A young guitarist friend of mine complained that he would not be able to perform as planned. How simple and silly we were. I was unaware then that the president had recently returned from a visit to Ireland, a country about which I knew little but where eventually I would make my home. The next few days were dominated by television. My family had owned one for less than a decade. Normally, unless you were on the spot, scenes of violence and horror were never witnessed. Television was the beginning of the end of all that. Even the explicit Zapruder film of The Killing was not broadcast on the three large networks. We were protected from such images then a protection so thoroughly eroded by YouTube and all the other social media. Decades later, when I saw the film and its nightmare-inducing frame 313, I wished I hadn't. For many of us, naive about the violent nature of the human animal 
History and hope is divided into before then and after then. TV gave us the opportunity to watch the oath of office administered on Air Force One to Vice President Lyndon Johnson, accompanied by the traumatized widow Jacqueline Kennedy. We saw the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald. How did he get those facial bruises? And then his assassination by Jack Ruby two days later. The president's funeral was so well choreographed that I wondered, even at that age, what established precedents were available. After all, the last presidential assassination was William McKinley over 60 years before. We were moved by the procession and the ceremony and the stricken widow and her two brave children, Caroline and John. There was a strong military theme throughout, including, we should mention, the Guard of Honor provided by the Irish Army 37th Cadet Class. In making the arrangements, Jacqueline Kennedy recalled how impressed the president had been with their drill at Arbor Hill during his June visit. At incredibly short notice, the cadets were reassembled to travel to Arlington Cemetery to provide a Guard of Honor. It is the only state funeral of a president of the United States in which foreign military forces have participated. One final memory stays with me. It was a brief news item interspersed into the ongoing commentary. A little boy was so taken by the pageantry of it all that he could not help acting out what he was watching on TV, as little boys do. He borrowed his father's rifle, which accidentally discharged, taking his sister's life. After life's extreme events, which punctuate our existences, most of us eventually return to normality. But surely not for that innocent little boy burdened with such weight. Sixty years on, I cannot help but wonder how his life has been. And the writing on this morning's programme, Smell of the Atlantic, was by Alexander McMaster. A stenographer for JFK was by Margaret Kelly. The Little Furry Rabbit was by Michael Harding. Thanksgiving, Irish Style by Sinead Inglesby. Winter, Inish Owen by Cathy Donaghy. And 22 November plus 60 years was by Fred Spengeman. And the music, Accidental Music by Ian Leslie and Tommy Hayes with Sarah Roach on vocals. Two Marvellous for Words from Frank Sinatra. A Ukrainian lullaby was sung by the Nightingale Trio. I Guess the Lord Must Be in New York City by Harry Nielsen, sung by Sinead O'Connor. And Indigo Sky by Sharon Shannon and the RTE Concert Orchestra. Sunday Miscellany's Christmas programmes are going to be recorded next month in not one but two live events with the RTE Concert Orchestra and special guests. In the National Concert Hall on the 5th of December and at the National Opera House in Wexford the following evening, Tuesday the 6th of December. There's still some tickets for the Wexford Concert, which includes Wexford writers Claire Keegan, A.M. Cousins and Joe Brennan. For tickets, check out nationaloperahouse.ie. And keep an eye out for our new anthology, Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023, which has just won the Journal.ie Best Irish Published Book in the Unpost Irish Book Awards. And it's in the shops now. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. 
For more from us, you can follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.